You're listening to Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs, a podcast offered in partnership with Missio Alliance. Each episode, we discuss internal and relational pressures, how they block effective leadership, and how we can move through them to a greater health. And now your host, Steve Cuss. Hey, folks, welcome to another episode, season five. Here we are. And uh, as I said last week, just I'm so excited about the caliber of guests that I have. And today is exactly that. Uh, I'm joined by Jimmy Miato, who's the president of Compassion International. And I, I'm excited to bring Jimmy on the show today for, for two reasons. First of all, he happens to be one of the most uh, sharp and experienced leaders that I've met. And I have had the privilege of meeting Jimmy. It's actually one of the other reasons I'm excited to have him on the show is I, I've always said if if you go overseas with somebody when you're in different, difficult circumstances, that's how you know who they really are. And I have been knee to knee with Jimmy in a van in a developing country on a mud road and got to see him in action. And um, he's the real deal. And he has a lot to teach us. I'm also interested in hearing from Jimmy because um, I think a lot of church leaders, a lot of my audience have a an idea of Compassion International that's limited. And I'm excited to hear from Jimmy what Compassion actually does uh, and how uh, Compassion comes alongside the local church. So without further ado, uh, welcome, Jimmy. Uh, it's great to be with you, Steve. Thanks. So uh, where I want to begin with you is, is your journey to becoming the president of Compassion. Of course, you built the Willow Creek Association almost from scratch, and really it exploded under your leadership. And then in 2013, you became the president of Compassion International, stepping in for an iconic leader, Wes Stafford. Uh, I'd love to hear what's it like stepping in to the shoes of an iconic leader, um, and also just your own personal journey. How has your own personal narrative really helped you uh, lead compassion? Well, my journey to compassion actually starts with my mother's journey. Uh, she was born in 1934, the daughter of migrant farmers that lived on the border of the U.S.-Mexico and just went where the work was. Uh, she, and when she was a child, she was taught how to keep a dirt floor clean and level. Uh, she had one doll her entire adolescent years, one toy, um, and uh, she married my father, who was living in that area, more middle class. Uh, but they had something in common. They had an adventuresome spirit. And when they got married, they wanted to see the world, and they have. They're still both alive, 90 and 86. But in 62 years of marriage, they moved 41 times. Golly. They moved a lot. Before I celebrated my first birthday, I'd already been in six countries. I grew up in seven different countries, 26 different homes and apartments and whatever, <laughs> uh, eight different schools before graduating high school. So we moved around uh, a lot. And uh, usually that's not stable for a young child, having that much instability. But my life was very stable. And I really attribute it to their love for Jesus. Jesus was the foundation of our family. My family was my first church. My family was my first small group. My family was my consistent set of relationships and came to Christ as the most natural thing to do at uh, six years of age because it was just modeled for me in my parents and in my family. Uh, so a sense of following Jesus was very uh, integral to my family life experience, always involved in the local church. Wherever we went, we were always deeply involved in the local church. And um, and then something happened in 1988. I had the privilege of uh, going to Seoul, South Korea. And um, while I was there representing the country of my birth, El Salvador, um, on their Olympic team, I competed in the decathlon. I, I, I went there for an athletic experience of a lifetime and came home with a life calling. And the life calling was to serve his church. And the reason that, that where that happened was I, I got to hear the story of the church revival of South Korea. And Compassion was founded right after the Korean War because right. of the plight of the, the war orphans. And that's what started Compassion. And here I am, you know, in 88, and I'm hearing the, rev, the story of the revival of the church and how it changed the country, uh, changed destinies and and it felt like I was witnessing Acts 2, but in our time. And I thought, oh, to be a part of vibrant churches changing the world for Christ, I want to I be a part of that. And I think that's where my calling to serve the church, I wouldn't quite know how for a few years, yeah. uh, 
Uh, but to serve the church and the leaders that serve the church was very central to my calling since 88. Um, and then from there, something happened, what brought me more to compassion. Uh, something occurred about, I guess now, 15 years ago. I was in leadership at Willow Creek, as you mentioned, and um, uh, Bill Hybels had read the book Divided by Faith, and we were very convicted by that book. Yeah, because our church was not reflecting the racial diversity of its neighborhood. Yeah. And so we were saying, it was commented in, in, in one of these meetings, you know, we don't have diversity in our congregation. We don't have diversity in our staff. We don't have diversity on our volunteers, vocalists, instrumentalists, and we don't have diversity on our executive team. And I'm sitting in the circle. Yeah. So I slowly raised my hand and I said, um, just making sure you all know that I'm Hispanic, right? And that my real name is Santiago Heriberto Mellado. It's not Jimmy. Jimmy's my nickname. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and everybody laughed, me too. And then the person next to me just leaned over and 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 said out loud, oh, but you don't count. And I knew what they were trying to do. They weren't trying to hurt me. They were trying to say, you're one of us. You're one of us, yeah. yeah. You're on the end. So I, I get the spirit behind it. Yeah. And again, everybody laughed again, me included. But there were two things that hit me real hard when that statement uh, happened. The first one was, well, you finally made it. You're finally American. You're finally white. You're finally in now. Because see, all along in my life, I was a third culture kid. I was always the new kid on the outside looking in. And my parents, because my Spanish was my first language, and my parents wanted us kids to learn English. So they always sent us to American schools. So it's like whatever American school I was at, if it was in Nicaragua, the Americans thought I was Nicaraguan. If it was Bolivia, the Americans thought I was Bolivian. If it was Panama, they thought I was Panamanian and so forth. And so I was never in. I was never accepted. I remember thinking, boy, there was a system here, but it wasn't built for me. It was built for someone else. But I learned how to operate in it. And so there was this longing to want to be American, be white, be accepted. And, uh, and so... I wanted to come to the United States. I wanted to leave the developing world behind uh, where I grew up in. And when I finally did it at the end of high school, college educated here, and I've been here ever since, um, it was this plight, to, this energy, this drive to, to be accepted and be American and white and all that. So the second thought was, one, you finally made it. So after all that striving, I finally made it. And the second thought was more Holy Spirit haunting in a good way. And it was, and that's not you, at least not fully you. What are you running away from? Because I was the one that ordained for you to be in all these cultures. I was the one that ordained for you to be born Hispanic in El Salvador, in Santana. I was the one that ordained for you to have your name, Santiago, be a Spanish name to be born of your mom and dad, one generation away from poverty. I'm the one that ordained you that way. So why are you running away from that? Why are you embarrassed about that? Why don't you talk much about your mom's background? So that was a real reckoning for me. And I was called to serve the church and I was doing it at the WCA. That's what the WCA, the Willow Creek Association was about, serving the church, that every church would prevail. The global church, yeah, not just the American church, yeah. So that's when we started in that zone, we started um, aggressively and significantly, the summit started expanding around the world and into Latin America, brought on my own cousin to serve on the Willow Creek Association staff for our Latin America expansion. And so I started to gain a vision for where I came from. And the summit started exploding in Latin America, has continued to this day. Um, I, uh, at that point, helped start and find the pastor for uh, a, a starting uh, Spanish church inside of Willow Creek called Casa de Luz and helped find the first pastor there, served on the board till then I left to come to Compassion and started to really embrace all of me, not just part of me. And so coming to Compassion for me is actually like a homecoming. Yeah, I'm coming back home to serve kids in places where I lived when I was their age. There's some of our projects that, you know, in one country, Nicaragua in particular, it's a half a kilometer from where I lived when I was in Nicaragua as a third grader. So it really is for me, 
a homecoming to say, yeah, you're called to serve the church, but it's more focused than that, Jimmy. I prepared you and I equipped you to serve the church in some of the toughest impoverished areas of the world. That's your call. Yeah. It's it's pretty haunting and and exhilarating to hear the hand of God putting you in all these different experiences, even the decathlon, the, you know, the idea that you would become, yeah, you'd represent El Salvador as a decathlete and God would still use that to, to really form you. And, and and still you came to compassion, if, if my maths is correct, Jimmy, I think it was seven years ago, right? 2013, I think you stepped in. I think a lot of our listeners can relate to stepping into the shoes of a giant. You know, West Stafford is this larger than life uh, kind of person. Was that intimidating to you? Was that comfortable for you? I know you and he had quite a relationship already. Well, you know, it, it actually wasn't. Uh, maybe it should have been. Oh, <laughs> maybe not. In denial. But I've known Wes since 1994. And his story and my story is growing up third culture kids. He was the son of a missionary. Um, right. I, I was the son of an engineer, not a missionary, but most of my friends were missionary or military. And uh, so the first time we get met together at a, at a mentoring retreat in 1994, we roomed together and we talked till 3 a.m. in the morning where we finally said, well, we have to at least get a few hours sleep or we'll be sleeping yeah. through the sessions tomorrow. But we, we became brothers. We became kindred spirit that day. We resonated so much at a heart level. Then um, our ministries partnered later on and and then it was about eight years ago that he, after a meeting, a strategic planning meeting between our two ministries, he pulled me aside privately and he said, Jimmy, I'm going to be re- retiring next year and I don't get to vote on who's going to succeed me. I don't even get to serve on the committee. They're going to do the due diligence of a global search and all of that. But I'm just telling you, in my quiet time, as I'm communing with God, I've just been getting this impression that you're going to succeed me. Now, mind you, I hadn't had the you don't count experience. I mean, I was like, I, I hadn't fully lived into that. I, yeah. I, it was after that experience, but I hadn't fully lived into that. Yeah, you hadn't made meaning of it yet. No, I needed more to go. I had more work to do there. And again, that would yeah. be expressed in my journey to compassion. But, but Wes challenged me. He said, you know, I know you're happy where you are. And the headhunter said, don't even try because he's going to be there forever but I'm just asking you to be open. And I said, okay, well, I can, I can be open and, and see where God, you know, would lead me. And, and then God let me see enough how this was the journey of my life that he'd been preparing me for. And, you know, Wes still works at compassion, right? His calling isn't any different. He, you know, he's 50% time, although he actually gives more than that, but uh, his calling hadn't changed. He's still an advocate for children in poverty and he's been a kindred brother in spirit these seven years. Um, and and he speaks, he writes, he, he's just an incredible gift to me. And people say, well, that's a little like, you, that's not what they usually say. They usually say the old CEO, go away and, and right. the CEO come in and, and don't ever come back and all that. And I just got to tell you, I've never wasted a millisecond wondering if Wes is for me hundred percent. And, and, and really he's for the mission hundred percent. He's for me. I never doubt that. Um, and I've done some things that, that maybe he wouldn't have. And as sure. that is normally the case when a, a yeah. leader comes in, you know, but, uh, I, and when people ask me, why has it gone as well as it has? I really only have one word for it. And that's humility. Wes is one of the most humble, mission-driven, causal people I know. And it isn't about him. It isn't about me. It's about the cause. And how can we together help, you know, join God even more in this mission of releasing children from poverty in Jesus' name? So, no, that's been a beautiful thing. Now, we also have a complementary set of gifts, so that helps. Uh, common heart, you know, we're one in spirit, all of that for sure, but we do have complementary gifts. So that actually serves us well. Yeah. I, I've been told uh, that that a lot of healthy leadership, leadership succession um, 
hinges on the outgoing leader too. Yeah. It really, they set the pace, they have the power to hand over or not. So yeah, that makes sense to me. I, I think you've expressed for us just your own personal formation, your your worldview and life experience that have prepared you for this role. What's also true is every role has unique uh, skills required. I'd like to explore with you, uh, Jimmy, what are a couple of skills that you already had that just fit so well? And then what are a couple of skills that you've really had to work on as you adapted to compassion from your previous leadership? Yeah. Well, of my 27 years in leadership, only the last seven have been in compassion. So I had a lot of development in, uh, when I, in leading the Willard Peak Association. In that first year, we were a startup organization and we almost didn't survive. And then we went through significant growth. And then we had to kind of shut down the things that started us and then grow around the summit, which was a different kind of what we were doing at the beginning was how does Willow do church? But then eventually the global summit, you know, took it over and the global summit's a different thing. It's worldwide yeah. leadership development uh, for the sake of helping the church prevail. So um, that was a lot of change, a lot of transition, high growth, plateau, renewal, uh, uh, turnaround, all those, you know, experienced in, in, in that from startup to early growth, to fast growth, to sustain, to plateau, to renewal, turnaround, transfer, all those things, you know, I had the privilege of going through there. So that'd be one thing is just the breadth of leadership experience when you lead something organizationally re- relatively small through all those seasons, cycles. But then also the, uh, it prepared me with uh, dealing with global complexity, cross-cultural, cross-ethnic, cross-language, cross-border. I mean, it, all these different multi-everything. Yeah. Well, we did at Willow. In fact, at Willow, we actually were, you know, when I left, you know, we were in like 120 countries, 60 plus languages, um, multiple organizations around the world that we had to partner with. So we were a relatively small ministry and annual budget, but it's complexity and its global breadth was disproportionate to its size. That would come to serve me well, you know, at Compassion. And then, um, and the next thing really is, um, I'm a generalist. Um, Because I was put into leadership at such a young age, I didn't like grow up through the marketing ranks or through the finance ranks or, or, and, and grow that skill. I had to be a generalist right from the very beginning uh, at, you know, like 30 years old and never led anything. Now I've, uh, I have to, you know, be a generalist and, and know enough about finance to be somewhat intelligent in there and then marketing or operations or human resources, all this stuff. So I've been a generalist and actually that fits me. Even yeah. my event in track wasn't a specialist event. Right. It was a generalist event. Right, yeah. you're sick enough to want to do ten events. Totally, I was just mediocre at everything. So, <laughs> okay, I got to ask though, what was your favorite event out of the decathlon? You know, this is very counterintuitive because it was the high jump. I, okay. you know, I, I was the second shortest of the forty-two in the field in eighty-eight, uh, and I won my group in the high jump, uh, and uh, so. The high jump mesmerized me. When I saw the Olympics in 1972 from Nicaragua, uh, the Berlin Olympics, uh, I was sold. I wanted to go to the Olympics from third grade. I started organizing high jump competitions and long jump competitions and races at recess. And by the time I was in sixth grade, and this was like tree branches were our crossbar. Yeah, yeah. uh, There were no mats. Are you kidding me? Just land on the grass. Yeah. And but by the time I was in sixth grade, I was able to jump over my head and eventually jump 13 inches over my head. Uh, So it's just the just (laughs) flying and all on your own, you know, (laughs) strength. So high jump for me was the highlight, especially because the in the high jump competition, it was down to the world record holder in the decathlon, Daly Thompson and myself. We were the final two and we battled it out and I was able to to beat him in that event. And. Uh, and, and Did you really? I, so I, I'm on the I'm unscripted at this point, Jimmy. But I, I'm 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 filtering back behind the Duran Duran lyrics in my head to get back to the '80s. Was Daley Thompson represented England? Was yeah, England? Daley Thompson was the uh, uh, two-time Olympic champion in the decathlon, world record holder from UK, and it came down to just he and I in the high jump, and and yeah. so I, I, and you beat him. I did, and he came over to me afterwards and shook my hand and said, good jump. 
And uh, he was very kind, very kind. We had just met because we had uh, we went to a training uh, facility about a week before and we happened to be there at the same time. And I was by myself. He was with his crew and he invited me in to to train with them. And so, you know, I got to know him in that moment. So that was great. And then to have that, that high jump moment in the Olympics was really fun. Well, let's let's check in on, okay, you come to Compassion. When do you start to realize, oh, there's a couple of skills I need to develop or there's an area that I haven't had experience in? What what was that? You know, let me share one more of the prep side of coming yeah. to Compassion. And that, because this one's really important. I think it deals with a lot of what, uh, why this podcast exists. And that was, I got close enough to what it means to have influence and for other people to think they know you, but they don't know you and celebrity status and the temptations that come with platform and, and being able to be grounded enough to recognize the temptation and hollowness of celebrity or the, and the dangers of yeah. platform especially the dangers of platform when you're in leadership in the same place for a long time, because that, that leads to certain dynamics that I don't think are healthy for leaders and I could see it in me. And so just having a sense of, Oh my, this is real. This has to be handled very carefully or it could destroy me. And so Going from Willow Creek Association, which was relatively small, to a compassion ministry, which was at that time about 30 times larger than the Willow Creek Association, um, meant that I was going to a larger platform and I needed to be really, really connected to Jesus and connected to him forming my deficiencies and faults that, uh, you know, I would bring to the table within my, you know, in my immaturity. And, uh, and, and so that was, a, that was sobering right there. And so I appreciate that experience of, of being involved in a church and a ministry that had global connectedness and, and um, was highly esteemed and all of that. And there's some good parts to that, but there's some dark parts to that. Right. And so just having that experience, I think, served me well. To, to really be careful. I remember a leader came to my office once that had made really bad choices in his life, um, had an affair, lost his marriage, lost his church, his ministry, was out of ministry for more than a decade. Full reconciliation, beautiful story. Uh, just so that that's kind of the, the end was a good ending yeah. and still to this day. But this person shared something with me I was coming as I was coming into compassion. And he said, Jimmy, be careful. Because special gifts could be teaching, could be leadership, whatever. Special gifts will take a leader to places that the absence of other gifts, like character, yeah. integrity, will keep them from staying there. So if you want to sustain the places where gifting may take you, you got to pay attention to the other gifts that sometimes don't get paid attention to as much and, and search your soul you know, as you step into this. So I, I've ne I'll never forget that. Special gifts will take a leader to places that the absence of other gifts will keep them from staying there. Yeah, it reminds me of, uh, I think it was Dallas Willard that would pray, Lord, don't grant me more power than my character can handle. S yeah. Similar idea, yeah. Yeah, and unfortunately, um, because there is a celebrity edge to our church, we've we've seen too much of that. And it does make me wonder how much of that is also happening with pastors that are not celebrities or faith leaders. Absolutely, know? because celebrities are relative. It could be right. at a local church of 80 people level. It right. could be celebrity at a church of 100,000 people level. So yeah. it, it can happen at any level. And there's dangers to, especially when you're a leader in the same place for a long time. Here's the dynamic I tend to see happening. Leaders get isolated. Walls get built around the leader, sometimes right. not even through their own making, but sometimes the people around the leader build the wall of they set them on a pedestal or they have you know thoughts about them and they say things about them to them that just start to create a, a wall, a barrier between them and the leader. They don't they don't have mutuality and pureness in, in the relationship. And so if the leader's hearing that, 
And sometimes the leader's actions themselves build walls around them that I end up isolating themselves. And I've, I've often said that life and leadership is hard, but life and leadership alone is impossible. Yeah. Impossible. So it's up to a leader to be a wall wrecker every day because the walls are getting built around them every day. So the leader has to be constantly looking for tearing down the wall that separates them, that isolates them, because in the long term, it's 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 a dangerous pit to lead in isolation. Yeah, I remember, actually, I think it was that uh, leadership summit that Colin Powell came and talked about how, as the at the time, the uh, joint chief of staffs, um, he would actually, he's quite uh, imposing when he's fully decorated with all his medals. He would actually wear a cardigan um, when he met with privates to try to shrink himself down so he would get the truth from them. Uh, th- let me let me ask you this, Jimmy. For a leader who's listening, let's say they have some kind of private habit that they know about and maybe nobody else knows about that's toxic. Um, or Or let's say they're not necessarily aware of the walls that are being built around them or the walls they're building or the entitlement, what what kind of gut check would you have for them that might be helpful? I, I, I guess I'm asking because the power of self-deceit is so strong. Yeah, in fact, that's where I was going. One of the most important qualities, I think, for a leader to lead over the long haul in a healthy way is, is self-awareness, is being able to be truly courageous to look at the brokenness that's inside of you uh, you don't have to shame yourself, but you do have to be aware of your brokenness and the extent of it. And as we grow in Christ, you take on the mind of Christ, the eyesight of Christ as well. Hmm. If you, the more you see like Christ, the more deficiencies you see, but it doesn't lead to shaming. It leads to more grace hmm. yeah. and healing in that. And, you know, I'll never forget retreats we used to do with two day retreats we used to do with, with Henry Cloud. And we would always ask them the same question at the beginning of the retreat. Everybody, do how many of you, uh, or do you, it's a personal question actually, uh, do you have uh, a single fully disclosing relationship in your life beyond your spouse? Do you have a single person that's fully disclosing beyond your spouse? On average, 70% would say no. And these are pastors, these are senior pastors, and about 70% of them would continue, would really, on a regular basis, 70% would say, I don't have a single fully disclosing relationship in my life. And so the so then those secret footholds do take hold, and then they're probably embarrassed to share with their spouse. They don't have this other relationship, and so it just, yeah. it takes root and and just finds its home there and grows. So that one is so key. That goes back to leading in isolation being just impossible uh, over the long haul. And I found that over the long haul, leaders will either get uh, a hard heart because just so many hurts and wounds and you get beat up over time in leadership. And so I don't want to feel anymore. I don't want to feel that pain. So you just grow numb and you just have a hard heart or you have a cynical heart where you feel all that pain. You don't stuff it away but you, you return it with cynicism and that's a killer. And then soft heart. And I don't want to end up with a hard heart or a cynical heart. I want to keep a soft heart and keep inviting others in. We have five cultural behaviors inside of compassion. And one of them is invite others in to your life and plans, invite others in. So we're constantly inviting others in so that we're not in isolation. We weren't meant to be on a growth journey in isolation. I think that's really helpful, Jimmy. The, the, the two I want to make sure we, we catch before we move on is the idea of numbing out and cynicism. I think those are great, tangible. I think everyone can immediately check their heart and say, what am I doing to numb out from pain? Am I becoming a cynical person? I, you know, I've been in local church leadership 25 years. I've been a lead pastor 15 and I, I can't stand cynicism. It just, it really rubs me wrong. It's this arrogant, self-righteous thing. But I understand it's a protection from pain. I, I've also, my wife and I, we've been chatting um, because I, I had this kind of weird, confident exterior and a pretty sensitive interior. It's, it's not a great combination. Uh, like I take things personally, but I act like I don't. 
And I, I think the third category is I think sometimes a leader is the last to know we're not okay. Yeah. And it's not always numbing or cynicism. Sometimes it's just that we're either uh, driven by the cause or we're others focused. And it is interesting for me to, to take more time to notice when I'm hurting or wounded or, and to take that more seriously. Um, do you have any reaction to that? Yeah, no, I, <laughs> it, it, it is the people around you that tend to notice first. Um, and for me, it'd be my wife, uh, my kids, um, you know, I can kind of hold up at work, but when yeah. I come home, I relax. And, and yeah. when I'm not in a place of having margin, when I'm not in a place of having a soul that is truly the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want, I don't need anything. I'm, I've got Jesus, Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. When I'm in that space, they know it. When I'm not, then it, it really is a sense of patience gets lost, kind of the first one that gets lost. And then, and then kind of victim status starts to show up in my spirit. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. I get all self If anybody knew what I'm carrying, you have yeah. no idea. Uh, if you only knew. It's all those phrases that, that yeah. kind of, you know, and, and you know, what's interesting is when you can start to have that kind of those fully disclosing relationships, even about your faults, then you can, you remove the power of secrecy that is around them. And so my family jokes with me because they know, they know. And we've chatted about this many times. Yeah, is dad putting on his victim cape again? <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they don't let me get away with that. And then uh, to me, that's the yellow flag or the red flag that says something's out of balance here. And, you know, it's, 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 it's not right. And if Jesus said that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, why is it hard and who made it hard? Uh, I love that. Yeah. In, in managing leadership anxiety parlance, you're describing isolationism, which isn't the time a leader is truly alone. Once in a while, you really do have to stand alone, right? And make the call. It yeah. is when a leader intentionally moves to isolation so we can feel self-pity. I, I have that same tendency. And um, it's, it's, it's comforting to hear that you do too. Um, Jimmy, you know, obviously we're going to get to the gauntlet of anxiety questions. I can already tell you're terrified. I can see it. But, but <laughs> <laughs> before we do, though, I really want to ask you to give us a good, uh, clear understanding of Compassion International. Because I, my understanding, when I talk to pastors about compassion, I've had the privilege of going on a trip and seeing firsthand what, what compassion does. Of course, um, Rob, uh, Rob Kelly uh, one of Compassion's great staff members is the youth minister at our church's father-in-law. So I've known Rob for a long time. And um, so I've no, I know more about Compassion, I think, because of Rob and then, of course, going on the trip. But I, I would say your average pastor would say, oh, that's that wonderful organization that sponsors kids where individuals can sponsor kids. But what, like your secret weapon is your local church relationships. Absolutely. Yeah, tell, tell us about what compassion does and how you do it. In fact, if you don't hear anything else beyond this, like about compassion, compassion is a church equipping ministry. Yeah. It's a church equipping ministry. My calling was to serve the church and then to serve the church in some of the toughest, most impoverished communities in the world. That's my that's my calling. And I remember I said that to Wes when he said, would you open, would you be open if I submitted your name to the, the uh, board as a potential successor? And I said, oh, Wes, no, I'm called, about, I'm called to serve the church. And that's, I know I'm solid on that calling. And, and Wes says, well, then, then you must be mistaken as to what we're looking for, because we're not asking you to change your call. I think we'd be interested in you because of your call. We just are asking if you'd be open to sit at a different seat at the same table. Yeah. That's, that's pretty good, Wes. Yeah, uh, that'll, that'll sell. That'll do it. So, so true. And, and there are three things that to think about with compassion that I'd weigh a hundred times prefer you think about before they're a sponsorship organization for yeah. children. It's number one, we're Jesus-centered. Number two, we're church-based. And number three, our strategy is holistic discipleship of children yeah. and youth in a local church. That's the strategy. It's holistic, which includes 
physical, socio-emotional, cognitive, and spiritual. So it's full discipleship, and it's partnering with 8,000 local churches. We only do ministry in a partnership with a local church, indigenous local church, in that poor community. And we don't want compassion, you know, represented there. It's that church that's the salt and light and hope in that community. We get to put a towel over our arm to serve that church as they serve about 250 kids per church. And that's what makes up the 2.2 million children. But it's anything that prevents that child from reaching their God-given potential is worthy of using the $38 a month investment from sponsors to equip that child and young person. And a researcher did an independent research on compassion and found that the, the distinctive of the compassion discipleship strategy is time with the child or youth. And so when, on average, the sponsorship lasts, you know, anywhere from 10 or 11 years in terms of the child in the program. And what you're supporting is you're providing on average about 4,000 hours of direct contact with that child or youth during their most at-risk years of their life in the context of the church and the love of Jesus. That's compassion. You've seen seen it on the front lines. And even when I started sponsoring children, I didn't know that up front. I thought, well, they sponsor child. I'm sure money helps the child in poverty. And I had no idea just how much of a church equipping ministry it was. Well, and even, you know, even some of the recent uh, critique of Western involvement in global issues, like toxic charity when helping hurts. Uh, I really appreciate that even with compassion, you know, let's say Western has come over, I got to go to Guatemala and and see what you guys do firsthand. And I, I think that was maybe my 15th global trip. I, I've always, I grew up in Perth, Western Australia, um, always been passionate about God's global work. But even down to the detail of if we are bringing gifts for these kids, we're giving them to the local pastor or the staff of the church who are then giving. We're, we are totally the almost invisible back end. It's all... That's how we describe it, that invisible part. The dignity, the reciprocity, all of, all of those biblical values about rich and poor. I, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. So I'm, I'm, I'm grateful to, um, yeah, just to get a chance. And the other thing that I was not aware of that I learned on the trip I went with you guys on is the opportunity for a Western church to partner with Compassion to actually open up a new territory. I, th- I think, correct me, Jimmy, on the numbers, I think you said there were 700,000 kids that you've identified ready for sponsorship yeah. that are just waiting for churches to jump in and yeah. a church could come in and, and work with you to actually launch a whole new operation in a, in a place that no one's ever done any child work or health or gospel work. Absolutely. We had uh, Crossroads Community Church in Cincinnati, very impassioned about Nicaragua in particular. And so we partnered with them and, and they said, our calling is to serve in Nicaragua. So I know you want us to maybe serve kids all around, but, but our church is called in Nicaragua. So we said, great. So we had to open up over 20 new church relationships to accommodate the fact that in a weekend they sponsored 6,000 children. Wow, It was unbelievable. Yeah. And so the kids are there and we say no to 80% of the churches that want to partner with us in the field because of the supply side, the resource side. If the resources were there, the churches and the willingness and the commitment of these leaders on the ground, it's there. of leadership anxiety questions. You're in season five. So uh, some of these questions from my listeners are old hat and some are new. Um, First of all, every leader has some situation that will just, they just know it's going to generate anxiety in their life. Uh, For me, it's often, if I don't know the answer to something, if someone asks me a question, I've got this weird thing in me that believes the lie that I always need to know. I I need to always look like I'm intelligent. And for me, it's complex. It was connected to feeling stupid as a kid and overcompensating, all of that. But is there is there a leadership situation in your life 
that you just know, ah, that's going to generate anxiety for me? Well, there's two struggles that I've had in my life. Uh, I think it it comes from my upbringing of being that third culture kid that was always on the outside looking in. And that was people pleasing and image management. Okay. Both of those are deadly to leadership over the long haul. So those have been two core areas that I've had to do a lot of counseling around, a lot of introspection around, a lot of, you know, uh, opening up hard conversations with God around, and then building spiritual disciplines around. So I I have spiritual disciplines that are very practical around image management uh, and people pleasing. Um, and, and I share it openly with people that know me and that are around me so they can help me because I need help uh, overcoming what was, you know, some deeply rooted things that came out of my, my, uh, my upbringing. Yeah. Would you be willing to share with us just one example of, okay, let's say that you're in a situation and it's pushing on that people-pleasing pressure. What's, what's going on in your head? What are you telling yourself that you have to then overcome? I'm not going to be accepted if I show up fully. If, you, if, if I show up fully with what's in my mind and I tell that person what I think about how the conversation is going in the team meeting, I, I risk and I start feeling anxiety around, oh, they might not like me. They might not approve of me as their leader. They, uh, you know, and, and I start to get insecurity around that. And so that's actually one of the triggers, one of the spiritual disciplines. And I, you know, for, for, um, you know, that particular um, immaturity and sin around uh, people pleasing, I, I, as soon as I feel nervous about that in the meeting, my spiritual discipline is to show up fully. Show up for inappropriate ways and right. ways, right. of course. I'm not right. want to show up and vomit on people. Right. The right way to do the right thing. There's a wrong way to do the right thing. So I want to do the right thing in the right way. For sure. But to show up fully in the right way and to say, hey, you know, I don't quite see it that way. Here's my my view. Uh, I remember someone that was counseling me said, Jimmy, you couch things uh, so much. You couldn't possibly insult people. So you need to take some risks. Take some risks because what you think might offend people. Trust me, you're a long ways from offending people. You're way off. Way off. Yeah. That's Take good. more chances. Take more risks. Feel that that sense of worry. Oh, are they going to like me or not? And and then celebrate that because you push through that and then find out what happens on the other side more often than not. They're not going to reject you over it. You're, these are internal fears. And the image management one is a cousin of that. Um, and you know, I when when things are said and I'm not coming off as the person that knows it all or the smart one or something like that. And it's not the image I want. My spiritual discipline there is one of abstinence. So the the spiritual discipline around people pleasing is one of engagement and showing up fully. It's image management. My spiritual discipline is abstinence where I abstain from the need to make myself look better than I'm being made to look like in that meeting. And I say, it's probably good and healthy for my soul for people to walk away thinking less of me because it's probably even closer to the truth. To the truth. So why are you so afraid of the truth for people to know that you're not so shiny like you think you are? So abstain from image management when you feel that pressure to jump in and be defensive and, and, say, and correct this and correct that. Say, no, 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 back off. Let it go. Let them walk away thinking less of you because it's probably closer to the truth anyway. That's oh, really good. We, we were chatting about um, the skills you brought to compassion. We also wanted to talk about, okay, a couple of things you had to learn. Let me frame it to you this way and see if this is a helpful question. I, I think for most leaders, the way to figure out what's going on under the surface is when you put us in a situation when we don't know what to do. Could you give us a time since you've come to compassion where you didn't know what to do and what was going on under the surface in you? Well, we spent a lot of time working on a global strategic plan. A lot of time, a lot of meetings and a lot of arguing. And we were starting to land some enduring goals and measures and then targets 
to those measures and then measuring actuals, et cetera, and, and around the right things. And so proud of this plan that was coming together. And then we do a staff meeting and people in the feedback will go, why don't we have a plan? Seems like we don't have a plan. And I'm like, well, of course we do. Well, th- this is the challenge. I, I couldn't figure out how to communicate to 3,500 staff people in 35 countries in seven different languages, different cultures and ethnicities. And we got this nice, wonderful, shiny plan that we produced over here. How do I get ownership of that uh, by everybody in every country that we serve? To one, know there is a plan. I was like, you don't even know there's a plan? Yeah. Good grief. And so then once I got beyond that thought, it was, you know what, you're the one that's failing, Jimmy, because you haven't figured out how to communicate to that broad of an audience in ways that they can receive it. You're the one that's that's tripping up. It's not their job to become an expert on all what you're working on. It's your job to include them in what the uh, you're doing as far as a total global strategic plan. That's your job. Communication is a huge part of that. And at Willow, when we had a staff of, you know, 150 people, you can put them all in one room and tell them. When they're all around the world in different languages, you just can't tell them. It's not that easy. So I didn't know how to communicate across all those chasms in ways that created enthusiasm, alignment, and ownership. So that's, that's actually, I mean, that's still a very real challenge right now. And in an odd sort of way, COVID, with all of the pain that has come with it, that's been horrific, there has also been um, some learns around connection and communication where we started communicating with our global staff on a weekly basis. And our USA staff and just the managers doing online forums, a bunch of different online forums. The the frequency of those forums has gone way up. We used to do two global all staff meetings a year. Now we're doing it every week in three different languages. So we're learning a lot about what it means to connect and communicate across so many chasms that are really hard to cross. So that was still a challenge for me. Okay. Oh, that's great. Uh, next question is, I, I think a lot of faith leaders, particularly preachers, so this this may or may not translate for you, Jimmy, I think we grapple with a gap between what we believe about God and what we experience from God. I, I know a lot of preachers, myself included, that we, we can eloquently talk about the love of God, but we grapple to experience it for ourselves. Do you have a gap for you between your belief and your experience with God? You know, this is a struggle I've been, I'm really active in right now. And um, uh, hopefully others can identify with it, but it's the struggle of doing for Christ and being in Christ. Yeah. And especially with a cause as precious as releasing children from poverty in Jesus name, that's a precious cause. Or how about the church's cause? You know, uh, great commandment, great commission, whole world. I mean, that's a beautiful cause. And and I find with more noble causes, it's easier to, in the name of that calling, make that calling your God. And when that happens, you begin to cut corners on being in Christ because Christ is not on the throne of your life anymore. Your cause, even a noble cause, is on the throne. And when the cause is on the throne, you're just very tempted to start cutting corners on your soul, to start cutting corners on becoming and who you are in Christ. And so I used to struggle with this balance of, well, but doing for Christ is important too, but I got to do it the right way. Or First Corinthians 13 says that it's worth nothing, even if it's serving the poor, you know. Yeah. So, but it, I, I kind of settled in my spirit that the most important contribution that I can make to the kingdom of heaven. In fact, the very things that I think he will be giving us crowns for, it won't be the achievements of the ministry I lead, but it will be, hey, here's here's a gem of peace. You grew in peace. That was awesome. Here's a gift. Here's another one. This one is joy. Joy grew in your life, and I loved watching it grow over the years. You know, patience. I saw patience grow. You know, faithfulness. 
gentleness. You know, I, all the fruit of the Spirit, I saw those grow. And that's the fruit that we'll celebrate. And I kind of for a long time thought it was achievements that he would celebrate. And maybe there's a place for that. It is important to serve. No kidding. But, but all of the doing in Christ must flow out of being. Uh, all the doing for Christ must flow out of being in Christ. Yeah. And anytime the doing for Christ doesn't flow out of being in Christ, then it's worthless, actually. And it doesn't, it, it doesn't produce the fruit that needs to be produced in our, in our souls. So, and I've been so achievement oriented in my life because that was my way to be noticed. Again, being the new guy on the block, the way to get noticed quickly was to achieve. So an achievement orientation has been, my goodness, uh, throughout my life. And, and that's putting that down and saying that, that's not what it's about. Who I'm becoming in Christ is the best contribution I can give to Christ, to God, and to those that I get the privilege of, of leading. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah. All right, then the final question leads right out of that. When in your life do you feel most fully loved? It's when someone, and it's not a large group of people, so it's like I can fit them on one hand. And one in the particular that I'm thinking of says this a lot. So I love you. I, my love for you is so beyond your position, is so beyond anything you achieve, is so beyond your failures, is so beyond your immaturity. My love for you is way beyond that. And I know some of those things, and I probably don't know other things that are in those buckets, but my love for you surpasses all of that. So when someone knows me, and they know the good stuff and the bad stuff, and they say my love for you is beyond your behavior and who you are, I mean, who, who what you do and what you achieve, uh, wow. Yeah. That's when I feel safe and loved and um, secure. Jimmy, I've been looking forward to this interview for a while and um, it's been a, a rich time. Thank you so much for giving us your time. I know you really do have a lot on your plate. So I'm just grateful for just how you showed up and shared your heart with us today. Thank you so much. Well, you're so welcome, Steve. And I just want to cheer you on to continue having these kinds of conversations that are soul conversations. And, you know, that's kind of at the end of the day, what does it profit to gain the world and lose your soul. And, and the, this is about, this is soul dialogue. So thank you for doing it. And um, grateful that, um, that people are tuning in. For more resources, visit stevecuswords.com or missyoualliance.org. 